for now, we're going to be jumping into the book of Ruth, and we are in chapter 3 this week. So uh, I, I hope that you've gone and you've listened to, either because you've been listening to it live or you've gone back through our app or on our YouTube, Hope Reformed Baptist Church YouTube and app, uh, that you've, you've uh, caught up with the story of Ruth so far. Uh, it's been intriguing. It's been beautiful. Today, we're, we're getting to a, a part of the story that is quite curly, uh, quite difficult really to, to preach through and explain and uh, do it justice and not have some kind of shadow cast against me as a preacher. You'll see why when we read it. But so far, we've seen that uh, it centers around the family of Elimelech. Now, he hasn't been featuring much because he died. He moved in the point of famine. Uh, he moved in, in Bethlehem, his family, over to the, the sinful, evil land of Moab. And there, he, he died. His two sons grew up and married Moabite women, not a thing to be done by Israelites. They did that. They grew up a little bit longer and themselves died. So now, now Naomi, the, the wife of Elimelech, is a widow without any sons, and she, rem- she moves herself back to Bethlehem where she has heard that the famine has lifted. On her way back, she, she sends both of her daughter-in-laws, these, these young, beautiful women who, who will not be very accepted back in Israel, who will not have a husband to find, who will not have further relatives of Naomi's to marry. She, she turns them aside, pushes them back to Moab and says, go back to your gods, go back to your family. The Lord is against me. There is nothing for you here. And, and one of them, Orpah, agrees, goes back, okay, love you lots, but I'll go to Moab. Ruth, though, Ruth, who this book is all about centering on and following the story of, she remains faithful, promises her kindness, even to the point of death, to Naomi, in honor of her dead husband, Naomi's son. She looks after Naomi, they come back together, and she begins uh, collecting aluminium cans and cashing them in, is the modern day equivalent. What she does is she goes to the grain fields, as God had commanded in Israel to be done. If you were poor, you could go to the fields and you could pick up all the leftovers in the, in the field. You could pick up all the stuff that's been dropped and they can be what you can either eat or sell. Now, as she's doing that to provide for herself and her, her poor, destitute, bitter mother-in-law, she stumbles across in God's providence, in his, uh, according to his eternal decree, in his sovereign plan, she stumbles across the field of a guy named Boaz. We see that he's a successful business owner, probably in his 50s. He drives a land cruiser. He's worthy. He's a man of valor. He's a, <clears throat> he's a good man, a wealthy man, an influential man. And he sees that Ruth has come to work in his field, and he knows her as this gal he's heard about. Who, who was faithful to her mother-in-law, who was such a blessing to her in a time of need, and he starts pouring out blessings onto her in repayment for all that she's done. And one of the things that he says to her is, don't just glean at the back of the line, picking up leftovers in my field. No, no, stay in my field, but what I'm going to give to you is the ability, kind of a, a VIP staff card. You can come straight up into all the piles of prepared grain, and don't just pick up the leftovers, 
pull out whatever you want from there. And I've instructed my young men, my employees, to provide for you, to give to you, to leave plenty of leftovers for you. And last week we saw Ruth get home with 13 and a half kilos of grain, which was about a month and a half or about a month of wages. And she made all of that in one single day. Boaz is pouring out blessing onto her. So, it now picks up that, that at the end of chapter 2 of Ruth, she, she comes home, she's excited, she tells all that had happened to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and, and it looks as if their, uh, their fortunes are turning by the grace, the provision, and the providence of God. It looks that, that, what, that she is going to be able to start making a worthy income. They will no longer be living in famine, in absolute destitute poverty. And what we saw is that Boaz, Naomi points out, is actually somebody who is related to us and therefore can redeem us. Now, you just need to go back and, and listen to last week's sermon in order to, to pick up all that the Bible tells us about this kinsman redeemer. That is a family member, a male family member who is responsible for redeeming or buying back or rescuing his family members if they ever fell into poverty, slavery, had to sell their land, or a widow without any children. All the responsibilities to fix that situation up as the kinsman family redeemer, hero. Well, she points out that the Boaz is just this very kind of guy for us. But what we, what we realize is that Verse 23 tells us, Ruth kept on going back to Boaz's field and getting all of this harvest and, and probably, make we can assume, making good on all of his offers for all of this grain. Uh, she's been doing this now for eight weeks. And what we thought was going to start kicking off this little romantic, flirtatious relationship between Roath uh, and Booth, no, Boaz and Ruth, rather, never takes off. It's been eight weeks. Ruth and Boaz never have another meal. <clears throat> it seems like Boaz is a normal man. <clears throat> He's a guy. He's not good at reading the relationship. He needs to be told very clearly what Ruth wants and expects of him. He's probably just assuming that this young, beautiful gal isn't going to be interested in him. He doesn't read the room very well. And, and so Ruth doesn't get a callback. I, I said before, I think this might be why he's single and in his 50s, because he's just not good at, at making the next move with the, with the ladies. Well, he, we see that uh, Ruth and Naomi, they have food, they have an income at the moment, their poverty is lifted somewhat, and yet, long term, they do not have an inheritance or any children to pass it on to. They do not have their land back for their family. They are still in long-term poverty, and they are still widows without husbands. Well, read with me in chapter 3 of Ruth, verse 1. We're going to see that Naomi hitches together a plan. Ruth, chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women 
you were. Now let's take a, a pause here. What we're seeing is that, that uh, Naomi started getting very excited at this news of Boaz eight weeks ago when Ruth started working with him. She was very excited. She kept saying, look, he's a redeemer of ours. He could marry you. He could help us. He could do everything for our family that we need. But eight weeks go by and nothing happens. So Naomi makes a plan B. She starts taking things into her own, uh, uh, her own uh, initiative. Primarily, though, this is plan B. Primarily, she's just trying to get Ruth married. Initially, when she said that Boaz was our redeemer, she probably had in mind that he would buy back our land, he would restore us to our wealth, he would take us both in, and he would give me grandchildren. Goodness sakes, I want grandchildren. <clears throat> but it doesn't look like that is what Naomi has in mind anymore. Now, her primary goal is, well, if that's not all going to happen, and Boaz has had eight weeks to act on that, a very long time when you're uh, uh, waiting for a gentleman to make a move. Right, ladies? Uh, in that time, Ruth, uh, Naomi has thought, well, if that won't happen, what can at least happen is Ruth can go catch his eye and get married to him herself, whether or not our whole family is brought in on this kinsman-redeemer situation. She's just really looking to get Ruth married. She's not this bitter uh, uh, Mara she told her, uh, her friends to call her. She's not bitter anymore. She's excited. She's making a plan, but she's just a little bit impatient. She's very keen for marriage. Um, and this what, what she says to Ruth when she says, Shall I not seek rest for you? Is a fulfillment of what she said back in Ruth chapter 1 verse 9. When Ruth was, uh, was coming with her back to Bethlehem with Orpah, and Naomi said to the girls, uh, don't follow me, go back to your own house. May God grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And now that Ruth rejected that, Ruth did not go find rest in the house of her husband in Moab. She, she chased Naomi back and looked after her. Now Naomi looks back to Ruth and says, well, well, you have done so much for me. Now it is right that I find rest for you in the house of a husband. So we, we go on that <clears throat> while the, the news back in chapter 2 verse 20, while the news of a redeemer had given her hope, she had become impatient after eight weeks of waiting, so she stages a meeting. This reality of, of Boaz taking in Ruth as a kinsman redeemer wasn't happening naturally. It wasn't going to happen by strict legal obligation because there was no strict legal obligation on Boaz. He was distant enough of a relative that it was his choice to do this or not. The other guy... And, and, and what we see is there is someone closer to Ruth that, who is a redeemer relationship. That He's not taking his move at the moment. Uh, so if all of this is not going to happen on its own, we take this into our own hands. I just want to say briefly, that's not a bad idea. Ladies, if, if there's been some interest between you and a guy... Uh, and, and, and he's shown some, some uh, interest in you and engagement in that relationship, and, and he's failing to, to call back, just do a Naomi and stage a meeting, okay? Get in his way. 
right? I, I would say something like uh, just happen to run into him at a coffee shop that he, that he frequents or, or maybe find whatever ministry he's doing at church and just happen to jump on the same roster as him. How crazy is that? We're serving together every Sunday. Isn't this nice? Get in his way, stage a meeting, make it happen, make him look at you and think and ask himself the question, why am I not making a move on this? <clears throat> I think that's a, that's a good example. We, uh, this is Ruth and Naomi getting together and trying to figure out their own version of the providence that had happened back in chapter 2, when Ruth just stumbles across this handsome man, Boaz's field, when it just happens that they're related, when it just happens that Boaz comes along right at the right time and sees them. Well, now uh, Naomi is saying, well, our, our providence, our, our luck, our coincidences haven't been so much in our favor lately. Let's just make some of our own. It's going to so happen that I'm going to force Ruth to go and talk to Boaz at midnight. <clears throat> so we will keep on reading. Uh, here we see uh, that, that as, as Ruth, and in fact, we'll, we'll just take a pause before we go into verse 2. What Naomi has done is take the initiative for Ruth's marriage. And this is really uh, culturally uh, relevant for uh, their time and in their place. It was the responsibility of parents back then to ensure the marriage of their children. In fact, uh, what we usually say today is that they had arranged marriages where the parents of two, two children, the separate parents of different families, but probably related somewhat eventually, they, they would get together, they would discuss the, the eligibility, the wealth, the the, the, the valor, the worthiness of their children, and, and they would agree, my son will marry your daughter, and, and the father of the bride would receive a, a price to, to purchase the hand of his daughter in marriage. This wasn't as if the woman was some kind of uh, a goods or object that could just be purchased. No, it was the, the, the purchasing of the honor of having this girl as the wife. And, and so that it was arranged, and that's just how, you know, I, I know that at that point, so many of us, especially the young'uns, would just naturally think that that, that is strange, maybe patriarchal, maybe, maybe uh, a sinful even, evil, strange, weird, uh, because parents, I mean, how many hands would go up if I asked the church today, under 18-year-olds, who would love their parents to pick their spouse for them? I don't think many would. But we need to just take pause because we are so naturally uh, bent to, to just accept as normal and best whatever culture we find ourselves naturally in. I mean, if you're born in other countries in the world, this would still be going on. If you're born at different times throughout the Western culture, this arranged marriage would be going on. We need to take pause and not just assume we're right because it's the culture we find ourselves in. We need to be assessing our culture. We need to be bringing it to the Word of God and seeing, is our culture, the way we do things, is it okay to just assume and take on? Or should we question it, do things differently, and make it submit to God's Word? And I think that is wise especially, because as we look at our dating culture, our, our sexual romantic culture that, that is alive in the Western world today, I don't think we're in a position to judge other countries. You know, we might point and say, arranged marriage, how, how forceful and uncaring and un, unloving for the, the daughters. But that was not the case. They were assured uh, uh, a, a good, loyal husband. They were 
uh, protected. They were, were, were saved all of the, the trouble of, of, of looking for a man out and getting to, to know someone like that. There's all that. But you just look at our culture and go, are we, are we doing better? Are we? Are we? All, all the, the women out there that go abused. All, all of the pornography out there that just poisons the romantic climate in our culture and, and normalizes sexual violence. As we look out and just see all of the, the single mums who are rejected and dejected by dropkick boyfriends or husbands who do not protect their, 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 their wife or their girlfriend who has become pregnant. Right? We, we cannot look at our world and say that our way of doing dating is just having top-notch effects and results. It's, it's tremendous. All the women in our world are well looked after. Children are well raised. We've got this marriage thing down pat. No. No, we should actually, I think as Christians, since the, the Bible gives us uh, so much of, of this wisdom, we need to submit our minds, our culture, our practices, even with dating, with pursuing relationships and marriage to what the Word would say. I, I, I want to suggest just that as we take some, some themes from this book, some themes from the Bible and just put it to our, to our own uh, culture of, of dating, marriage, relationships, we see some wisdom come from the Word in this. That when, when there is what, what we might commonly call dating going on, a man pursuing a woman, a woman becoming interested in a man, becoming exclusive, there need to be these things present. I, I'm going to list some things, and all of these things should be, should be present. There should be some attraction, right? There should be some physical eye-to-eye, person-to-person attraction, right? You, I like them. They are beautiful to me. He is handsome to me, whatever it be. That, that's not a bad thing. God has made us as whole people, mind, body, soul. The body has real, true attraction to people. That, that's a good thing. It is not everything. And it should not be overly trusted or overly emphasized, what should then be the case is where there's attraction, then there should be the recognition of godly character. I hope our, our singles are taking notes at this point. Attraction and then godly character. That is that, that this person is, is known, has a reputation for how they behave, and it's in a godly way. This is how Boaz had heard of Ruth, and this is how we had also heard about Boaz, a godly man, godly woman. All right, thirdly should be that there should be some, some personal chemistry. You know, you, you start hanging out and it's not just all boredom, all dry, and uh, you'd rather be uh, taking a class in arithmetic than sitting through another meal with this person. There should be some chemistry, some fun, some laughter, some smiles. You, you connect on deep issues. You, you share emotions about certain things. You, 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 you connect in this chemical way. That's a good thing. It should be there. But I want to say, as a strong one here, and maybe you would agree with all the others naturally, this one I think we need to uh, be a church that, that pushes for this. That where singles are dating, there should be family consensus. Family involvement in that decision and in that relationship. That maybe we're not right down here on this spectrum saying that parents choose spouse and, and put them together in a marriage fully arranged. Not a bad thing, but culturally very strange for us. 
But it should not be right down this end where the, the young guy goes and picks up a young gal, takes her away from her friends, away from her family, into the dark of the night to do who knows what, brings her back, drops her off at the front door, says goodbye, never meets that mum and dad. Or if she's living out of home, right, never meets her family, her friends. She, she's someone very different around them than she is around you, mate, I'm assuring you. And it is the coward who, who flourishes in that situation. It's the sexually perverted who, and, and aggressive who, who flourish in that situation. We want our young women to be pursued in the context of a wider church family. Right? We want to meet those guys who are interested in you. But we want especially the young guys, or the single guys, to be interested in the family. To be involved with that family. Family, because a woman is a product of her family, man is a product of his family. So, so there needs to be involvement. Whether it's a young couple, there needs to be family conversation, a, a parental conversation, input, wisdom, and putting the foot down in, in firm decision if necessary. That's all good. And then after that, this, uh, after family consensus, there needs to be, and we're going to see this come up with, with Boaz, there needs to be an ability to overcome obstacles for the sake of this relationship. Is he willing to, to overcome things, make sacrifices for you ladies? This is a test. You're worth having. You're worth fighting for. A man needs to know that. And then you need to ask, will it practically work? Right? Are there the means to be together? Does, do we have the money to be together? Do we have the same family plans together about children and where we'll live and what goals we have in our life? Are those things going to practically work? And, and if that's all the case, then you've got yourself quite a, a healthy relationship. I will say this, young people, single people, whenever there is a romantic relationship occurring, it must have marriage in sight. There's no such biblical thing as man and a woman getting involved with each other without the question, where is this heading and will we be married one day? It always has to keep that in, in sight. Otherwise, you're just here for a good time. You're just here for some, some good pleasures and it never goes anywhere safe, godly or biblical. But let, let's just jump straight back into the text now and keep on reading because now that we've got that cultural insight and that marriage romantic insight in the background, we're now going to start looking at what goes down in Ruth chapter 3. <clears throat> so, in this parental marriage culture, Naomi is taking on the responsibility to find uh, uh, Ruth, this, this wealth, this happiness, security, and a family. And it's all going to center around Boaz. Verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were working? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. What she says here in verse 2 is that Boaz is our relative, our close relative. Back in chapter 2, all we knew was that he was some kind of distant-ish. We don't know. He was a relative. He could redeem them. The emphasis was on the redemption. Now we see he's actually a close relative. He's very eligible. That's what Naomi is saying. But she seems to have left behind the sort of grander goal and dream of having him redeem all of us as a family. Let's just focus on the fact that you can marry him. Let's get that going. So the plan 
And uh, this whole situation that occurs, Naomi's plan is the most awkward, the most tense, the, the most tricky part of this whole book. I've got to be honest with you. It really is. She has a plan. Let me tell you this. Let's commend this woman. She has a plan. But just the plan that it is, is troublesome. Her advice is risky. And let me tell you, just because it happens in Scripture does not mean that it is prescriptive to happen for us. Just because it's Naomi's advice to Ruth does not mean it is God's advice for us. Why am I warning us with so many hesitations? Well, let's read and you will see. She says that Boaz is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. So this is what we realize is uh, after the the harvest has finished, and it certainly has, um, at the eight weeks after all the barley and the wheat has been uh, brought in, made piles, and day by day some of it is being beaten out and, and separated grain from husk and straw, and all of that process is going on, but there's always leftover each day. At the end of the harvest, there's, there's a, a large work to be done in, in, in uh, doing that whole thing again, in winnowing it, in, uh, on the threshing floor, which Threshing meant beating apart the parts. Winnowing meant letting the breeze push away all the the husk to a separate part and leaving behind the good grain. Now, the idea is this, that at the end of the harvest, here's Boaz and all his young men working at the threshing floor, that concrete square slab up on the hill where there's a nice breeze. He's going to be there at dusk working, getting all of his grain into bags for sale at the markets and an enormous profit. She says he's going to be there tonight. And then the point was that he would stay there overnight with his young men to keep the barley, to keep the wheat safe from robbers, to keep it looked out for once the job is done. Then in the morning, they'd uh, throw it onto their trailer and take it to the market or to the store granaries. Now let's read verse 3. Naomi's idea is that while he's there, having worked hard, wash yourself, therefore. Go take a shower, Ruth. You've been working hard. You're beautiful, but for goodness sake, go and have a shower. Wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your fine perfume and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Now, this, these, these, uh, this language of go and wash, go and put on perfume, put on an outer cloak. This is marriage language. This is a bride getting ready for her wedding language in Scripture. Wash, anoint, and put on your outer cloak. And and so here's Naomi giving her the advice, what you're doing, let it be very clear, you are going to send a message to him, right? This this is like wearing a, a long white lacy dress to your third date. You're telling him very clearly, I'm interested in marriage, And so the four hours that I think it would have taken Ruth approximately to wash and put on perfume, you know how 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 we can be when we're excited for the for the guys, right, ladies? That four hours passes and she goes on down to the threshing floor. You have to know, in scripture, we we see this in Ezekiel, uh, the prophet, we see this in Hosea 9, verse 1. The threshing floor is actually a, a uh, the kind of like we might uh, uh, think of the, the dark alley, right? If I said he and her met in a dark alley at night, you're not getting positive 
thoughts about that. The threshing floor was somewhere specifically that a lot of sexual sin would take place. It was where they might go and, uh, and, and commit fornication in order to please Baal, right, the God, in order to, to gain fertility in their body and fertility of the land sometimes. Other times it was, it was where prostitutes would go and hang out because here's all the guys, young, working hard, isolated from their wives back in town, and that's where they can make some income. The, the threshing floor is a suggestive place. And what I want you to start seeing now is the author's intentional innuendo. It's going to keep on making these suggestive sexual innuendo remarks that make us very tense, maybe a little bit awkward, but, but worried about what's going to happen, uh, uh, wondering what is the outcome of this going to be. So let's keep reading. <clears throat> she goes, she takes, she put on her cloak, she goes down, but Naomi says, do not make yourself known to the man until after he is finished and drinking, right? So, so stay secret. Go down there, keep an eye on him, but stay secret, but maybe behind a tree, behind one of the tractors down by the field. Keep an eye where he is, but don't let him see you until the time is right, okay? And she's got some insight. She's been married before. Naomi knows men are most agreeable to uh, tick the box and say, yes, darling, whenever there has been food and drink involved, okay? <laughs> She's saying, let him have a meal. He's worked hard. It's a Friday afternoon. He's going to be sweaty. He's, 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 he's worked hard all harvest. Let him sink a few cold ones and then go and ask him your question. So that's the idea. Let him eat and drink. Verse 4 says... <clears throat> Verse 4 says, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. So now he's actually, Naomi is suggesting, don't even go up to him once he's finished his work or once he's finished his meal. Let him fall asleep. Watch where he goes down. Mark it in your mind so that you can go to him later on. Okay, now obviously that's an important step. You want to make sure you're going to go and do this, whatever she's about to do, you want to go do it to the right guy. That would be awkward. She ends up proposing, showing herself to one of the apprentices. Now, you don't want to marry an apprentice. Go get the, uh, the employer. <clears throat> right, so make sure you know who he is, where he is, where he's lying down, and then go to him. Now, you know what is about to happen, right? Ruth is, is, is wanting a, a husband, according to the, the Leveret um, custom in the Old Testament of kinsman-redeemer marriage. And so, obviously, Naomi's going to say, Ruth, take your Bible, take your little scroll, go down to Boaz, wake him up there, and do a little Bible study together, okay, on Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Study the kinsman-redeemer. Encourage him that that should be what he wants to do for us. And then just pray together and see if the Lord would move his heart to so encourage him, right? Is that what she encourages? Absolutely not. No, she's a lot uh, riskier in what she tells her to do. She says, after watching where he has laid down, go and uncover his feet and lay down. So from behind the your hiding spot, watch where he is, sneak up secretly, go to where he is lying, uncover his feet, that is, pick up his sheet or his blanket that's covering him or his cloak, pick it up, lift it off, lie down at his feet. 
In the English, this doesn't really sound all that flirtatious, a, a gal sleeping at the feet of some smelly worker, but it is filled with, in the Hebrew, sexual innuendo. Leviticus 18, as it talks often about sexual sin in Israel that God commands them against, Leviticus 18, over and over again, this language is used. Do not uncover the nakedness of someone, someone, someone. That word uncover in the Hebrew is, is suggestive that throws you back to that chapter. Uncover, right? Go and uncover his feet. Well, well feet also refers or at least suggest something sexual. Not that much of an attractive organ, we know that. But in the, in the Old Testament, the, the, the covering or uncovering of feet was something uh, used as an innuendo or a suggestion for something else going on. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3. When Saul goes into a cave to uh, urinate, uh, to relieve himself, the English version of the Bible says, the Hebrew says that he went into the cave and covered his feet. And in Hebrew, they know that means he, he, he uncovered other parts in order to relieve himself. So, so when we see in, in Naomi's advice, go up to him, uncover his feet, it's all very, very suggestive. It's, it's, it's using language that, that is just awkward. It's as if you were, a, a, your, your daughter was giving you uh, a recap of her first date with a young, eligible, young, Christian, beautiful man. And she says, you know, we, he, he took me out to a meal and we went for a walk through South Bank and, and it was just wonderful. And, and you know, he, he shared with me his dreams and goals and told me all about his work, mom. And then, and then he came and he, he dropped me off at, the, at, at home by, by 10 p.m. And, and you know, and uh, we just stood at our front door, mom, and we made out that we would like to see each other again. <clears throat> you, you made out? Oh, that you would like to see each other again. That language, why did you say it like that, daughter? Why did you use that language? That got me worried. And that's what's happening here. Naomi is, is using very suggestive, why are you using those words here, woman, kind of language. Go, uncover his feet, and lie down. If singles should be doing anything together, it's not lying down. Stand up. Sit opposite each other. Be in the light, not in the dark of the night. This, is, this sounds like bad advice. We, we, we withdraw from this, and rightfully so. The author wants us to see that Naomi is desperate, and Naomi is secretive and tricky in all of this. And uh, look at the end of verse 4. Go, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I'm sure he will. I think that's part of the problem. I don't think this is a, is a positive in her plan. He'll tell you exactly what he wants you to do. No, bad. Yet, Naomi's advice. Now, now what I think is going on here is that Naomi, Naomi is, <clears throat> she's designing not a sinful situation, she's designing a, a tricky situation, but trusting the moral character of Boaz. She trusts Boaz not to take advantage of, of this woman. He's trusting him to make the right decision. But that's what I think is so unwise. 
Singles should never get, or in fact any Christian, should never put ourselves in situations where the one thing stopping us from, from major sin is my own moral decision and character. No, we should not put ourselves to the test like that because if you're anything like me, you're aware that sin is so tempting, tricky, and secretive that it can pull down that moral character so quickly. Isn't that what it is to be human, is to be so easily fooled by the deception of sin? If the only barrier between you and outright rebellion to God is your own wise decision-making that day, then you're already too close to the land of sin. Draw back. Flee from that border. Rather, have yourself in situations where you are not flirting with temptation, but far away from it. That is where good character is shown. Good godly character does not test itself as close as it can get to sin and the border of it. This is risky advice. Very risky advice. Very strictly, in the language, it is not suggesting she's saying to go and do anything sexual. It literally just means go, lift his blanket up a bit, lie down at his feet, and he'll wake up and tell you what he would like you to do. The intention being whether he will marry you, whether he, he, he asks something else of, of you, you know, in the future that will do something different, plans might change, whatever it is, make some plans together, Ruth. But man, it comes across suggestive, and man, it is risky. The author knows that. The author's telling this story. God knows this. And we ask the question, then, will God bless Naomi's very clever little plan that she's made? Well, what we want to see here is, is, is the doctrine of God's providence informing decisions, when we've been looking over and over at the doctrine of providence in the book of Ruth as it unfolds, because we've seen that there's no coincidence, it's God's providence. There's no chance, it's God's providence. There's no bad luck, it's God's providence that gives us suffering or blessing. We've seen this in all things, that God is governing everything towards his final goal of glorifying his son Jesus Christ in a redeemed, chosen people through the cross. And he's governing everything towards that, meaning that he's controlling every single occurrence of every single atom, molecule, personal decision, demonic activity, angelic work, everything in life is controlled by God in a way that he brings about his ultimate outcome yet never engages in evil or sin himself. With that view, with that view of God's providence, what we see in the book of Ruth over and over again are prayers. I hope that you don't think, well, God's controlling everything. Up to him, I'll sit back. Rather, knowing that God is involved in all things brings us to the point of, logically, I should be praying if I want something that work to happen, in my family to happen, on a national scale to happen, and in my own health to happen, in church to happen, well, God's the God of all these things. He's working all these things to his glory and purpose. So I can pray to him about everything, anything. I must and should be praying. But what we also see in Ruth is human activity being the answer to those prayers. So we saw in chapter 2, Boaz saying, may God bless Ruth. 
And then what was God's providential way of blessing Ruth? Boaz himself blessing Ruth. Well, we see it again in Naomi. If we can take any good advice out of what Naomi's done, we can see she, she prayed for the good and flourishing and security and safety of, of Ruth. And then she acts to reach that very same goal. We should have the mindset that since God is in and behind and controlling all things according to his unchangeable, sovereign purposes, then we can see his hand in all things, even our own behavior, so we can act according to wisdom and according to thought-out decisions. And we know it's not that I did this, not God, but if I've prayed for something and I now look around for opportunities and step into them, I know that this very action of mine is God's own providence. Could be the very answer to the prayer that I was praying. We act, we make decisions, we budget, we plan, we choose things, we, we act on them, and yet we are always submitted to his will knowing that God will change at any point what he wants to change. But I, to me, is given to act in obedience. <clears throat> Not waiting for some sign in the sky, some dream or vision, but working according to wisdom. But what we also see, and, and this will have to be more or less where we uh, end our, our time together. Time has just gotten away from me, I'm, I'm sorry. But, but what we um, realize also is that God, being sovereign... Everything working out according to his plans, Romans 8.28 tells us, and, and Romans 11.33-36, to 36, all things, Ephesians 1.11 tell us, are being worked together by the plan and counsel of God's goodwill. That reality never excuses our sin and justifies us in doing the wrong thing, even if it ends up with a good result. As we've looked at the doctrine of providence over and over again, we've said Genesis 50, the, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, then being accused of rape, and then being thrown into prison, and then all the things that happened to him. He rises still to be a prime minister in Egypt. And his brothers, when they come to meet him again, they're never excused for their sin just because God worked out things for Joseph's good. It's true. Joseph would never become prime minister if they did not sell him into slavery. That does not mean they made him prime minister or excused for their sin. Rather, Joseph says, what you intended for evil, and you are held accountable for that evil, God intended for good, and to God we give glory. So, we, so I say all of this because as we look into the story, things pick up, Things look very interesting and, and wonderful in the story of Ruth and Boaz. And the story changed because of Naomi's intention and advice. But that does not mean, and I just want to say this so that we don't get tempted to justify our own sin, that we can look at our own uh, uh, evil choices, at our own sin, at our own foolish decisions, and say, well, God, look how things worked out anyway. Or in fact, you use that very thing to bring about your purpose. Therefore, I'm excused. I'll tell myself in the moment of temptation that it's okay if I give in to this because God works all things according to his pleasure. So it's okay if I do it. He'll figure it out. No, good that we believe in God's sovereignty 
terribly backwards that we would use that as an excuse for our sin. Like Paul speaks against in Romans 3. Shall I do evil that good may abound? Like, is that the excuse? Absolutely not. People who think that way condemn themselves. There's no room to think. I was in sinful sexual behavior, but look, we ended up falling in love. Now we're married and have a beautiful family. God be praised for his ordaining that beautiful, wonderful family and his forgiveness of sin. But it does not justify evil. Uh, you know, I, through my sin, I, I learned the, the deep lessons about God's grace. So, so that kind of gives room for me to keep on falling into sin and learning more about God's grace. By no means, the Apostle Paul says, should that be our thinking. No, for, for us is to obey God. For God is to use everything, including our foolish mistakes, for his plan. John Calvin spoke of this, and he said it in this way. He says, there is a great difference between what is fitting for man to will and what is fitting for God to will. For through bad wills of evil men, God fulfills what he righteously wills. Do not assume that that space of God, that place of God to do for, for you to be able to do evil because you think that by God's sovereignty we are excused. And, and next week, it's going to have to be next week, I'm sorry, that we dive into the very outworkings of what happens. As Ruth, as, as we see here in verse 5, Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. And we're going to see how that works out and what, what comes of that and what God eventually brings out of that uh, risky decision. But I want to first point you to the book of Acts, because there we see this, this doctrine of providence, of God's own controlling all things to good purposes. We see it in its most glorious and in its most wonderful reality. What we can know as Christians is that God uses evil for good. In fact, God used the most evil act ever done by humankind, by you and me, by our sinful nature. He used that for the greatest glory that he's ever brought about. The Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth to the Jews. He says, this Jesus delivered up, that is, put on the cross, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereign. God killed Jesus. God ordained that he would be on the cross from before the foundation of the world. Yes. But what does the rest of his sentence say? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see that God's sovereignty in bringing Jesus is what works for us our salvation? God in his infinite wisdom planned that you and I, though we would fall into sin, 
We would have a redeemer made available for us. We would have a way made that we can be saved. And that was always going to be by God's sovereignty through the death of his son. There is no other way to write standing with God other than having your sins taken by Jesus. There is no other way to forgiveness except by having Jesus, the Son of God, crushed for your iniquities. There is no other way to right standing with God except to have faith in the offering up of Jesus. It is true to say, had God not slain his Son, we would not have redemption. And yet... The men who did that were held accountable as murderers, as destroyers of the Lord of life and glory. They killed. They were held accountable. They had to either repent of their sin or be judged of their sin in hell, even though they could say, had we not done that, had we not killed Jesus, had Judas not betrayed him, there would be no salvation for the world. Friends, you and I are just like them always seeking to justify our sin, always seeking to excuse what we've done, demanding and deserving judgment. We want to work it into God's sovereign plan and, and excuse ourselves. But friends, God's law finds no wiggle room. Where it sees in you and I a rebellion against his law, it brings a full, just eye for eye, hand for hand, tooth for tooth, and life for life punishment. We stand condemned under the law of God. And praise be to God. He offers to us truly condemned, never excused by our own reasons, excuses, or, 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 or pointing to God's sovereignty. Damned under the law. To you God offers and has offered Jesus Christ. Christian, if you are in right standing with God today, it is because God made no excuses and allowed no excuses for your sin, but crushed Jesus Christ in our place. And if you yet stand as a non-Christian, unbelieving, or someone who calls yourself a Christian but still living in sin, to you God says, the fullness of the law, though against you, can be satisfied in Jesus, can be turned away from you because of what Jesus did. You, by simple faith, can believe in Christ, be saved, forgiven, and brought into the covenant community of God, redeemed by God, coming under his refuge. Let's pray. Father God, we we see in in your book, in your account of history, the glorious ways that you bring about your purposes. We thank you, God, for the book of Ruth. We thank you, God, for how it points to your control and your sovereignty. We thank you for the, the knowledge that we can have, the assurance we can have that, that you oversee all things and watch over all of our concerns and bring all things for our good and your glory. I pray, God, for the singles among us and And for those uh, seeking a husband or a wife, that you would bless their pursuit, that you would bless us as a church to enable that to be as godly as possible and as holy as possible. But God, would you, would you above all of these things, bring sinners to yourself? Use the marriages uh, just as you did in the book of Ruth. Use the, the families and the married people in our congregation to raise up disciples 
to bring a, a spiritual offspring for you. God, I pray that we would, that, that, that as this sermon goes out, people would be saved, believe in you, come into our church, you would build us up. May you glorify Jesus. We thank you. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.